want to make sure everybody has the privilege of rejoicing in news that you may not know about unless you're following the prayer chain, but we've been praying for a young man in the church for the last number of weeks here as he was diagnosed with cancer. 23-year-old Jonathan Ryan had a surgery following up his previous surgery where they removed his lymph nodes uh, because they had found cancer in the lymph nodes and they went in and took out more. And to the praise of God's grace in his life, they took out lymph nodes and found no more cancer. So where is Jonathan? Where you at, dude? Well, pass, pass along to him our, our continued prayers. I know there's still some treatment issues and options that they need to pray through and get God's wisdom for, but we're grateful, very grateful for God's mercy in his life. Uh, Scott and Grace Shefferstein are here from the north. Where are you guys? Right here. Stand up so we can greet and thank God for you guys coming all the way down. Scott, we really didn't think that you could survive an entire crawfish season without coming down. So we knew it was just a matter of time, buddy, that you'd be here. You were running out of time, so good thing that you showed up when you did. Uh, well, how many of you guys are going home today to a, a big meal, maybe cooked a turkey, you're having your family over? How many, how many of you guys are having a big meal day event today? Can I, if it was Christmas and I ask you that, how many guys would raise your hands? If it was Easter and I ask you that, how many guys would raise your hands? All right, does anybody know what today is? It's Pentecost Sunday. And that is indicative, actually, that we don't equally respond to major, major truths in the Word of God. Because this day, I don't know if anybody else even came this morning thinking, man, it's Pentecost Sunday today. Right, you'd know if it was Easter, right? But this is Pentecost Sunday, so open up to Acts chapter 2 with me. I have intentionally not missed an opportunity in the last three or four years to preach a Pentecost message on Pentecost Sunday uh, because it would, be, it would be like missing Easter. Uh, this is huge in God's economy, and I hope to help us to see that again today as we read through a good portion of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to skim through this chapter, this one, we won't read the whole thing, but let's begin in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that the scene changes, they're going to spill out into the streets from this upper room. I think you can imagine what that scene look like based on what's about to happen and be said next. They are experiencing the presence of God and the effect of the presence of God on them in a way that they've never known before. There is a realization that Jesus had been pointing to this and pointing to this and pointing to this event. 
I don't think they had a really great definition in their heads who would have. And suddenly they're experiencing God and they're going out into the streets and, and it says that they were proclaiming the great things of God, but they were all speaking in different languages. The languages of the varieties of people who had all come to Jerusalem for this great feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was an Old Testament feast that gathered thousands upon thousands of people to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. It was actually a mandatory gathering of the men of Israel. Uh, the women came voluntarily. The men were mandated to come. And so there was this huge celebration taking place already, and then into the streets poured these disciples who are experiencing God, and they're walking around. You know, I'm just wondering what that looked like. You know, we wonder what the upper room looked like, but I wonder what it looked like when they spilled out onto the streets. Now, based on what I'm about to read to you next, I think it probably looked like, I don't know if I can do this with my leg, um, it probably looked like them just sort of bounding out of the building and just they were saying things and, and they were in wonder and their faces were lit up and there were these sounds coming out of their mouths that they had never spoken before and in the language in which they were speaking they were declaring the great things of God and people began to overhear this this band of people that just spilled out onto the streets look in verse 14 but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. He's speaking to the crowd who's begun to wonder what on earth is taking place. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, why would they have supposed that? Probably because of their behavior. Right? Because they looked like they staggered out onto the streets and they were loud and they were enthusiastic, right? I mean, it looked like a party. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Here's Joel's prophecy. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now he's explaining this event and this new presence of God amongst his people. And now he's going to preach for the next several verses the person of Christ and the work that he's just accomplished on the cross. Now skip down to verse 33. Verse 32, this Jesus, who he's just described, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this event that takes place that needs an explanation is tied to the exaltation of Christ. Christ is now exalted, and this is the result of what he has accomplished. Look in verse 38. Back up to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what 
shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray together. Father, what a day on the calendar. This has always been. Lord, we don't, we don't make it significant today. Lord, it was significant to you before it occurred, and it remains significant in its effect for your people today. So, Lord, help us to get a fresh view and appreciation for what mattered on this day that still matters to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This event in Scripture is preceded by many, many statements, but one in particular just preceding it in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 1. When Jesus explains what's going to happen here as you guys wait is that you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You are going to receive power. Now, the only problem, especially for us, with using a big phrase like that, you're going to receive power, is what do you mean by power? Because power doesn't always mean the same thing to people. Power through time and through history and through technology has changed. The definition's very different. There was a day and an age when, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's a place in which the people of God are intimidated to go up against the enemy because they have chariots of iron. Oh, they have such power. And if you had bows and arrows and swords at some point, you were, you were a powerful army on planet Earth until somebody discovered gunpowder. And then guess what? You weren't all that impressive anymore with your bows and arrows because the power of gunpowder gave somebody a severe advantage over you. And that didn't last forever either. I remember one of the last battles that was fought in the Revolutionary War was the Battle of Yorktown. It took a month to fight this battle over this city, Washington's forces fight, fighting Cornwallis's forces. And finally, about after a month, 222 people are dead. A month-long battle has been fought, and a turning point in the war occurs, and we know the rest of the history. Just 163 years later, another city would face a battle, and it would be a deciding battle as well, and it would be fought, and it would end another war. Although that battle wouldn't take a month, it would be a battle that would last but a few moments. And it wouldn't be 222 people that were dead. It would be 70,000 that were dead when the United States dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and the war suddenly changed because the world got introduced to a greater power than gunpowder in that moment. See, power sometimes needs an upgrade. How we use the term, what we expect of power, sometimes it needs to be upgraded a little bit. All right? There was a time when this country was in the 
foothills of being discovered in the Mayflower. Remember the Mayflower? Set sail to cross the Atlantic. The Mayflower was an impressive vessel back then. It was a large cargo ship. It carried all of 102 people plus crew across the Atlantic with about 150 tons of cargo with them, taking them 66 days to cross. Well, you know, the Boeing 747 carries 500 people across the Atlantic when it travels. It, too, carries 150 tons of cargo. Uh, the difference being it travels at 650 miles an hour, and it'll get you there in seven hours. Because of what? Different power. The Mayflower used wind power, just hoisted its sails and did the best it could. The combustion engine changed the world. When man figured out how to harness the power that was in fuels and detonated, exploded, and create a combustion engine, all of a sudden power got a whole different definition. It got an upgrade. Power in that moment was redefined. As a matter of fact, uh, you could say energy is the thing that drives the world now, isn't it? I mean, energy has changed our world. The ability to capture energy, transfer energy, and make use of it has revolutionized the world. The industrial revolution, the way in which you and I live today, is because of the ability that man now has to tap into power and make use of it. So when Jesus says, you shall receive power, uh, we need to be careful how we define the use of the term power. Are we talking bows and arrows here? We're talking atomic bombs. It make a very big difference in what we expect. My question to start with, what might be the impact on Christians discovering how to release and transfer the power of the Spirit into this world? What might be the impact as Christians discover this power and learn, learn how to transfer it into the world. What kind of an impact might this have? Now, remember with me, because just because the Bible says that, that there is power and there's power available, it doesn't mean that all of us are walking in it. It doesn't mean that we're all experiencing it. For years and years, and years in human history, bows and arrows were the way to go. There was no electricity. There was no power grid traveling throughout this country. There were just people with very meager ideas of what power involved. And they lived for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. As a matter of fact, if you travel today, even though here electricity has, has revolutionized our world, you can travel to parts of the world today and you can't find electricity. There are large segments of the world today still living in some other form of power. So just because power is available somewhere doesn't mean it's being used everywhere. That reality is true both in the natural world, it's true in the spiritual world as well. But one thing I think that's clear when we read the New Testament and we study the power of the Holy Spirit I think it becomes clear that the church was not intended to build the kingdom using hand tools. I think we were supposed to use power tools. 
And yet, yet, you can get out there with your saw and give it the best effort you possibly can and muster up all the human strength and effort in the name of God that we possibly can and bring all of our good intentions into the activity of ministry that God intended to sound more like, those of you who like to cut things with power tools. I was kid mad about his power tool abilities. Matt, do we want to talk about your power tool abilities? No, no. I don't think we have time, actually, but medics need to be on hand when Matt is attending a building project. He handles some power tools well, right? I mean, some power tools he's prolific at, but we'll just keep the saws out of his hands. Uh, he's, not too, he's not too bad at basketball. What do you mean by that? He's got two good legs. He's probably pretty good. <laughs> All right, question. What do you know of and what do you expect of Pentecost and the era of the Spirit? What do you know about that, this thing, this event called Pentecost? And what do you expect when, when Peter explains that Pentecost was the beginning of the era of the Spirit, this outpouring, this what Joel described, this is it. What he actually said was, this is that, which has been spoken of for years, Joel, the prophet, he uses him, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah have been speaking of this day, and this is that. Now question, what do you know of that day? And what do you expect of that day? And is it important that we would know or expect much of anything? I mean, are there, are there categories in the Christian life that it's just okay for us not to know a lot about? You know, we're limited human beings. I'd love to say that we just need to know everything equally. Uh, probably not true. We probably don't need to know everything equally. But this falls into a category of critical information. So it cannot be something that we have vague ideas about because it's the basis of how we live the Christian life. Deuteronomy chapter 29 in your outline says this, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Right? That's exactly what the promise was in Acts chapter 2. This promise is for you and your children. This is one of those things that is no longer a secret thing. Matter of fact, the Bible says way too much about it for it to be a secret thing, which is not intended to be something that we just back away from and say, you know, who can understand that? You know, is it, maybe it's one of those mystical secret things. This is not a secret thing. This is a published thing. This is a thing that God has made much, much noise about and written a whole lot about. The Apostle Paul would speak of a dimension of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Your translations say, I don't want you to be ignorant of this because it's too important. Right, turn real quick to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is an interesting set of verses, and I'm really not going to highlight what typically is the interesting debate in this passage. Um, Apostle Paul 
shows up in Ephesus and he comes across a number of disciples. I believe there's 12 disciples who are there. And they're called disciples. And the passage above it, we learn something about Apollos, a man who was mighty in the scriptures, who taught accurately the way of the Lord. And he had been in Ephesus. There was some deficiency in what he taught, and it seems to be reflected in the same deficiency that's in these disciples. So the proximity would lead us to suspect that these guys had been influenced somehow by Apollo's teaching. But they were deficient. And here's what I want to highlight. Is where the Apostle Paul starts his conversation with them. Not so much, you know, well, were they really disciples? You know, it's not clear as whether they're disciples of Christ, disciples of John the Baptist, and they really weren't even Christians yet. Okay, all those are very valid points. Not after that. I just want you to see whether or not the issue of Pentecost was a priority in the conversation that Paul would have. Verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he goes on and traces out a conversation. Into what were you baptized? Well, we're baptized into the baptism of John. So there's an explanation as to what they believe. But I want you to see something. We don't know what triggered this. We don't know why it was that it occurred this way. But the very first thing Paul asked to them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we haven't really even heard of the Holy Spirit. I think it's helpful. John Stott's thought here, he says, this cannot mean that they had never heard of the Spirit at all. For he is referred to many times in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist spoke of the Messiah as baptizing people with the Spirit. It must rather mean that although they had heard John's prophecy, they had not heard whether it had been fulfilled. They were ignorant of Pentecost. And that's a a good phrase to question and underline. They were ignorant of Pentecost. Yet they were trying to live some sort of a life that had to do with God. The Apollos, when we hear about Apollos in the, in the verses right before it, Apollos was a mighty teacher. And he was not only attempting to live the Christian life, he was attempting to minister the Christian life. He was proclaiming teaching to people in order for them to come to God. And after hearing him teach, Aquila and Priscilla take him aside And they they teach him more accurately. And he begins an even more effective and powerful ministry. For he, verse 28 says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews. You know, there's this power emphasis over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And, you know, it doesn't detail exactly what did Aquila and Priscilla adjust in his ministry. But what's interesting is he had the same sort of limitations on him as the disciples did in the verses right after it. The deficiency for the disciples was they didn't understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that perhaps they really didn't even understand the gospel. That's possible. But I have to highlight the fact that Paul asks about the Spirit in their life. I can't ignore that. No matter what it is that they believe, that's what he was after. And this is a good question. This is a, this is a good, good 
good question. All who do counseling, all who lead small groups, this is a good question. You're walking through issues in your life. You're struggling. You're falling on your face. You're failing. Whatever it is, something, something was given away an issue here for Paul. And we might not ask it exactly this way. We might not ask, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? For some people, that sort of a question is needing to be answered. It might sound something like, hey, what's your walk with the Holy Spirit like right now? There could be a direct correlation to issues that form a need for counseling and the operation of the Holy Spirit. See, because Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And perhaps it was looking into powerless living that caused Paul to say, hey, there there seems to be a brownout going on around here. Seems to be no lights are on. This is like a third world country. You guys are playing with bows and arrows. Where's the power? Did you guys receive the power? Did you receive the spirit? He sees something in their lives that causes him to say, there's a power outage here. And there may be some truth to where some of us can find ourselves. And the next time we sit down to do some counseling with somebody who seems to be trapped in a pattern of behavior or doesn't seem to be living in the sense of God's goodness and his abundance and have turned the corner into the promises of God beginning to be more and more experienced, that the question needs to be, hey, what's, what's you and the Holy Spirit like these days? Where are you at in being empowered by the Spirit of God? For Paul, this this was not an ancillary issue, like he could talk to them about some other things and this wasn't going to come up. It was not that way for Jesus either. Jesus highlighted the day of the Spirit profoundly over and over again. I just put a couple of verses in there in your outline. John chapter 7 is one of many examples. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is a a picture of power. It's not a a trickle. This is not a, a little brook that you can hear a little bubbling in the background. This is the flow of rivers of living water. This is whitewater rafting pictures. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Whatever Pentecost is about, it's unavailable right here. If we're living in the day of Joel's prophecy, the the era of the Spirit, these guys are living in the era of not yet. Not yet. John 14, verse 16. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Let me just stop on that point for a second. You know, somehow we have in the world that we live in this this equal opportunity employer idea that 
that what God does to some, he is somehow bound in the doctrines of fairness to do for all. So therefore, we have this idea that kind of all of us are included in everything that God is about. I was in a, uh, take, doing some tests uh, in a hospital the other day, and there was this lady who was checking me in, and she had plastered on her walls all this scripture sayings and prayers, and I thought, oh, this is great. This is great. This lady had all these declarations of how she's praying for people, and then, so I sat there. She had to leave the office, go do a couple things, so I'm reading through all these things, and they're, they're wonderfully positive. They're wonderfully affirming, but... Major flaw, and I didn't bring this up with her, but major flaw. They were giving the promises of the people of God to the world. They were telling you, if you didn't know God, what you could expect from God, how God was going to be this for you and that for you and this for you and that for you. Do you realize the Bible does not teach that? In Scripture, there is a huge differentiation of God's promises are for God's people. And if you're not God's people, well, wait, 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 wait. Didn't God create everybody and isn't everybody God's people? No. He did create everybody, but we are not all God's people. Sin has caused a separation between us and God, the Bible says. So there are those who have, by the grace of God, crossed over that separation. There are those who have not. And they're referred to in this passage. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, unable to receive the Spirit of God because it neither sees him nor knows him. And this obviously must mean more than knows about him. This is a relational knowing in Scripture. But then look what it says after that. Speaking to the disciples, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the passion that Jesus had to point to a day. He says, you guys know him, but you know him this way, and you don't know him that way. You know him with you, but you don't know him in you, but you will. So just come in this day. See, Pentecost was this day in the calendar of God where the activity of the Spirit was going to change for the people of God. It was not an ancillary issue. It was a major issue. Now, why does this matter, and how important Should it be to us? Well, it's of huge importance. Jerry Bridges says, Without his enabling power, we can neither fight sin, nor grow in character, nor minister effectively. It's the ministry of the Spirit that makes all those things possible. I want to use John Stott's quote here as as an outline uh, for the rest of this message. Because he He pushes the ministry of the Spirit into, I think, the relevant categories that we must pay attention and look for the ministry of the Spirit in. So look at this thought from Mr. Stott. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the Spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. And no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Pentecost was the inauguration of the new era of the Spirit. Now, let me walk through these dimensions because I think as we'll see in a moment... 
the ministry of the Spirit gets compartmentalized way too often in most churches. And so there begins to be an, <clears throat> an aspect of the Spirit that we focus in on and look at to the neglect of the fullness of the ministry of the Spirit. And, and what it does for some of us, what it's done through the years, is polarize our feelings about the Holy Spirit, which is just an amazing tragedy. Can you imagine in God? It's one thing to have to correct the church to say, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Christ. It's another thing to have to correct the church about, I'm of the Father, I'm of the Son, I'm of the Holy Spirit. What? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, in all humility, I don't think there's a human being walking around in human flesh that understands the dynamics of the Trinity to begin to draw lines. I don't think it was ever God's intention for us to, as I've said about other things, step on one aspect of the Godhead in order to understand the other aspect. You know, that's a human dimension. That's never God. So there's a ministry of the Spirit here that, that pours into our life that Pentecost inaugurated that we do desperately need to better understand. So let me move through a couple of these things quickly. First thing Mr. Stott highlights is that there's no life without the life giver. There's no life without the life giver. If one simply walked through the theology of John, John the Apostle is taken up and absorbed in the new birth dynamic, this new life that comes to a human being who's walking through life created by God, but yet not indwelt by God and not not born of the Spirit. And so he uses that terminology over and over and over again. From the very beginning, chapter 1 of John, when when John begins to speak, to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Those who were born, not of flesh, nor of blood, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Now, he loves that phraseology, and he'll use it over and over again. You get to John chapter 3. It's John who's recording the conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus is explaining to him, you know, Nicodemus, you know all kinds of things. You've got all kinds of religious information in your life, and you seem to be a decent person. But, you know, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus, like any of us, asks the question, born again. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Uh, I, I can't, can't crawl into my mother's womb a second time and be born. And Jesus explains, no, 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 there's two births, Nicodemus. That which is born of flesh is flesh. It puts you fully in relationship to Adam. He doesn't say that, but that's what we understand from Romans. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it makes you a child of God. You read through 1 John you find over and over again the importance of this being born dynamic. Right? First John chapter 3. And this is concerning human behavior because see, this is where you would be asking the question, and rightly so, what's the condition of your relationship to the Spirit like? If your life begins to look like it's not, you're not really a Christian, are you? By the way in which you live, your life is declaring that, that maybe you're really not a Christian. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, here's why it doesn't make sense for a Christian to continue to practice unrighteousness. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, there's a new life in a Christian indwelling him, a new powerful life. You shall receive power. So the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit gives us life, but gives us life powerfully. So that's why it doesn't make any sense that we would raise up sin patterns as though they are more powerful than the Spirit of God who is now in us as a person. Listen, different, and I'm using the illustration about electricity, different than electricity. Right? Electricity doesn't have a mind of its own. It's governed by something else besides itself. It can only go where it's allowed to go. The Holy Spirit is not like that. Oh, that's not what I've heard. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Really? You need to read a little bit more of the Bible. The hearts of the king are like water in the hands of God, and he turns them wherever he will. I mean, listen, don't make God into electricity. It's like, well, well, you know, God can't violate man's free will. Like, you know, like God can't, you know, electricity can't travel past that wall where it has no wire. Just the laws of electricity. Listen, God doesn't have any laws that limit him. The idea that God can't do that because he won't violate this. You, you need to read the Bible more carefully. The Bible says, I am God in the heavens. I do whatever I please. So there's a person in us who wants something. And he will do whatever he wants to do in that regard. So since that's true, you might be tempted to want to go off into that sin and you might have given into the flesh in such a way that it's very enticing and you even feel trapped by it, but, but the good news is you are born of the seed of God and there is a spirit in you who doesn't want to do that. And it doesn't matter whether you're having your best day or your worst day because you don't change the personality of the Holy Spirit in you because you're having a good day. It's not like all of a sudden he gets charged, you know, Keith's excited about the kingdom today. Me too. <laughs> oh, Keith's so down. I'm just not motivated to prompt him or move at him or do anything. It's the spirit of God. He's not dependent upon you. And he's in you. Powerfully in you. There's no life without the life giver. There's a life in us that motivates and moves us. Look at this next thought from Mr. Stott. He says, there's no understanding without the spirit of truth. There's no understanding without the spirit of truth, right? Many scriptures, but John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. How do we come to understand this word? By the Holy Spirit. This is why no Christian, no Christian born of God by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the powerful Holy Spirit should ever say 
You know, I, I try to read the Bible. I just can't understand the Bible. I just can't understand it. Really, you can still say that? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Right? Let's play with that phrase. He will guide you. Can you understand the Bible? Yes. He will guide you. Do you think you can understand the Bible? Yes. He will guide you. I can't make sense of it. Oh, yes, you can. He will guide you. So can I understand the Bible? No Christian should ever say they can't understand the Bible. Because understanding the Bible was never about your human capacity. Right? Remember those who are of the world who don't know God cannot receive the Spirit of God. They don't have the mind of God. They might read the Bible, but they're not getting the spiritual life out of the Bible that is here for us by the Spirit. No one, no one should ever look at somebody else and say, well, you know, that's easy for you to understand that. I mean, you've gone to seminary. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, 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 what are you elevating when you say that? I'm, I'm elevating your human capacity to take in and understand information. That's what I'm elevating. And then you have a uniqueness. You wouldn't say that if you really understood that that person's indwelt by the exact same Holy Spirit that you're indwelt with. Would you look at them and then say, well, you have some advantage over me? That's why you understand it. No, not at all. He will guide you into the truth. 1 Corinthians 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to understand. Power to understand. But let, let none of us sit here in the kingdom of God thinking that, you know, I don't really spend much time in the Word because it's just hard for me to understand it. Okay, I, I might ask you the question, did, did you receive Holy Spirit when you believed? That might be my first question in trying to help you get past that because the issue is it was never about your ability to understand in the first place. It was about the power of the Spirit who's now come to you that you might understand. Mr. Stott says there's no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. I'm I'm not going to comment on that this week because there's some elements of unity that I want to talk about next week and we'll get to that then. There's no Christ-likeness of character apart from his spirit. Remember Galatians 5.22? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And this, this, is, this is the personality of the spirit who goes and does what he wants to do. And this is what he wants to do in you. This is what you don't turn him on and off to where he will one day become more love. He's the Holy Spirit. His character is in you as a personality to bring those character issues to bear on us. Jerry Bridges, Bob Devington, their book, The Bookends of the Christian Life, says, we, are, we also emphasize the Holy Spirit's role because we believe it's often misunderstood and undervalued in Christian circles today. In many instances, when the work of the Spirit is recognized, the focus is limited. 
That's, that's too true. The focus is limited. Now, depending on what your church background is and where you came from, the focus might strictly be limited to the fruit of the Spirit. And so when one talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit, one is talking about love and joy and peace and transformation of character-related issues or what my temperament is becoming as a result of the influence of the Spirit. And so the powerful move of the Spirit is about that. Or if one comes from other types of churches, the powerful move of the Spirit is about phenomena of speaking in tongues and prophesying and being able to lay hands on people and see them healed and supernatural type events that take place. Do you understand either one of them is limiting the focus of the Spirit? And when I look in the New Testament and I find the word power associated with the Holy Spirit, it is not just in the category of miraculous gifts, although it is. And one should focus on that if one is going to be fair and honest to the teaching of Scripture on the Holy Spirit. It is also powerfully about the transforming dynamic of the Spirit at work in our lives. See, and if you've been in churches, you can understand how the focus on one has an expense on the other. You can focus on character transformation and become or learning dynamics, and become unaware of the Spirit sort of off the leash. The Spirit doing things that you just sort of didn't script for him to do that you don't necessarily understand to tell him how to do it, or that you don't have the power to try and pull off in some of your own natural abilities. And then on the other hand, you can be so enamored with the power of the Holy Spirit and the functioning of gifts that all of the focus is about how might I minister in a particular fashion to this person while I'm living my life apart from that moment in a way that's not seeing transformation. My attitude is terrible. I'm full of pride. Hard to be around, boasting and and ridiculous in how I think my way through life. But get me? In a ministry moment, and I'm there, man. I'm focused on the Holy Spirit. I'm praying. You can hear me praying. Everybody can hear me praying. I'm, I'm in a group. I'm, I'm, I'm inserting myself. Wait, is that wrong? No, it's right. But it's limited in its focus. Ministry of the Holy Spirit is powerful. Not just in one of our favorite categories. It says the focus is limited to his gifts for ministry rather than his role in transforming our lives. But the truth is, the Spirit's role is essential in our day-to-day sanctification. I look at verses like this, 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Really, freedom. Well, bow and arrow freedom or atomic bomb freedom? How free? It has everything to do with our definition of power, doesn't it? And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, right? Transformed. Bow and arrow transformation or atomic bomb transformation? Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is The Spirit, boy, wouldn't you just love to take up some Trinitarian issues right there? (laughs) This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Transformation, then, is a work of the Spirit. 
It's the power of the Spirit that transforms us. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The power of the Spirit causing an abounding in hope. Wait, wait, abounding like the Mayflower abounding? Or like a Boeing 747 abounding? What are you you expecting from Pentecost? How many of us here this morning are abounding in hope? And we came into this building surfing on the past week, abounding in hope. Our outlook on life and where I'm headed and what's awaiting me in the future is filled with hope. And when you engage me and interact with me, I'm not somebody preoccupied under the weight, being crushed by something. You encounter hope. You encounter a sense of expectation. I look into the future and I'm expecting something. What is that? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Where did this come from? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's not just me getting psyched up. It's not just a cool book I read or I came across some new New Testament information. And man, I'm pumped. Well, you know, I can find reason to just get pumped with that information. But God has done something more than that. He's giving me the power of the Holy Spirit to lead me into these truths that I might be pumped by them, and I might find hope in them. So, you know, is it a legit question that if I'm not abounding in hope, might I ask the question, hey, Keith, how are you in the Holy Spirit these days, man? What's happening there? Is there a flow of power going on in your life? Are you receiving from the Spirit of God? 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, That he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is an odd set of statements here. But might it be that there exists in the Apostle Paul's thought the ability that the gospel would come only in word? It would only come in word. Therefore, he clarifies, when the gospel came to you, it did not only come in word. It came in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. It came with more than words. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is more than words in their life. And you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How, how did they manage to have joy in receiving the word in a moment of affliction? Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy finds its source in the Spirit, not in the moment, not in the circumstance. It finds its place in the Spirit. So out of the Spirit was coming joy that gave them an ability to stand in the midst of affliction and have joy and seek to be imitators. That's character transformation taking place. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Stott says there's no effective witness 
without his power. Right? That, that, was the, that was the most fundamental thing that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I, I think, again, if I'm careful with that word witness, and I look at what the New Testament's about to teach about witness, there is proclamation witness of explaining the gospel. The, the gospel is coming to you in words. It's just not supposed to come in words only. So it comes in words, but as I, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, it comes through the church that acts as a PA system for the gospel. So it gets its loudness by the life of the church. So witness is not, and you can see it in those verses that Paul just mentions in 1 Thessalonians. Your lives were a demonstration of the gospel. And, and the gospel came to me, and I lived a certain way among you, and you became imitators of that. See, Paul was changed by the gospel so that it wasn't just words that he proclaimed. It was the impact of those words by the Spirit in his life. And then that produced an impact in other people's lives. And then when that impact began to resonate, it was like a holy hum declaring the gospel from this place. That's what we see again here. Effective witness is by the power of the Spirit. Romans 15, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I mean, when you hear Paul in Thessalonians, you hear Paul again here in Romans, and you talk about what was Paul aiming at by way of ministry, the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed. I mean, I think that that's a general phrase that you could have wrapped Paul's admonishment to the churches about. Let your words proclaim the gospel, let your life scream the gospel as well. And, you know, there's something here, and you see it in this next passage. This is what I call one of those little intangibles, one of those things on the scene here that you can't put in a bottle, you can't put it on a scale and weigh it, but it's present. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Whether it was in Corinth or whether it was from Jerusalem to Illyricum, wherever it was that Paul was proclaiming the gospel, there was something taking place that you sort of can't get your hands on, that intangible thing of what is the Spirit doing when human voice is vibrating the air and words are traveling into your ears, what's the Spirit doing in that moment that people are being converted by that? People are rushing to God. People are coming under conviction. People are desiring to put faith into the message of the gospel. What's happening there? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, you can't explain it by... Um, preacher uses accurate choice of words, human being finally hears accurate choice of words and therefore believes. You cannot explain it that way. 
I've told the story before, the amazement of the work of the Spirit of God in, in teaching on God's saving work in the person of Christ in the third week of the Alpha Course, sitting down at a table and then listening to the dialogue take place and watching Ellen Pell in tears, unable to speak because she got it. And then watching three people over an older man sit and explain clearly how it is that he is trusting in his own goodness for his salvation. I don't know if I sat at the table like this going, but they both heard the same thing. And yet, mysteriously, one was born again and the other stayed dead. The same words vibrated the air, the same presentation and thoughts went into both of their heads. But one came to life. What was that? Was the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is wonderfully encouraging, wonderfully freeing to know that when you and I speak the words of the gospel, hopefully from a life that's also declaring the impact of the gospel, there's a mysterious thing taking place in the air in that moment by the Spirit, and that person comes to belief. Listen, how many of us have put the emphasis in the wrong place? We're so concerned that we got our apologetic just right, that we can explain just exactly the details of the gospel so that they can come. Please, get the gospel right, by all means. But, you know, even when you find in the New Testament record, the gospel doesn't get exhaustively preached all over the place. But the Holy Spirit comes in and saves amazingly. It's a work of the Spirit. You shall receive power, power to see things happen that you don't have the ability to bring about. When you witness to a friend, when you share your story with somebody, when you tell them about the saving work of Christ, remember there's something else in the room with you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And he can go places and say things and prompt hearts in a way that you never can. And you're not called to. That next little comment there, the witness of the church through its life and message is strengthened by the Holy Spirit's ministry of gifts. If you looked in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Peter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, what you would find almost across the board, I think I'm safe in saying that, is spiritual gifts, which the Bible is describing spiritual gifts, it, it is divine abilities that are given to believers. It's the ability to do something beyond your own ability. It breaks into supernatural realms and gives you a ministry of power and influence that you do not have in the natural to accomplish. But most all the gifts are directed inward toward the church. Almost all the gifts are about building up and strengthening the church so that the witness of the church might hum with power. And so there's an aspect of the ministry of the witness of the believer that takes place because you and I have been equipped by the Spirit to function in spiritual gifts and have an influence on one another. All right, one last thought here. Stott highlights the new era of the Spirit, Joel's prophecy, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all saw a day that was coming 
that would be atypical to what they had known. There was this holding out dimension. One day, Jesus even has this tone as he keeps looking to and looking to this day that was coming. The era of the Spirit in power. And, and, but one of the things when you look at the ministry of the Spirit that makes this so critical, so important, is, is almost the similarity of how electricity has become so important to our lives. Because electricity is having an influence in not just one category, is it? Right? We don't just turn the lights on by electricity. Right? Your air conditioners run on electricity. You can charge batteries. You can run cars on electricity. There's almost an endless application to what one power source does. And that's the way the Holy Spirit is. He is the power source for an endless number of applications that get taken up in each one of us. It's like we're, we're appliances that plug in and we all do some different things, but yet the church's ministry comes to life. And all you need to do is flip one switch and turn it all off. The Pentecost switch. Turned it on. And ignorance of it might be the means of turning it off. Wayne Grudem, speaking of this ear of the Spirit, says, we must realize that the day of Pentecost is much more than an individual event in the lives of Jesus' disciples. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit was at work throughout the Old Testament. But during that time, the work of the Holy Spirit in individual lives was in general a work of lesser power. Right? We need a fresh idea about what we're talking about when we say the word power in Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a remarkable day in the history of the church because on that day, the Holy Spirit began to function among God's people with new covenant power. Now you and I desperately need that power. And sometimes, and in just a moment, we're going to pray for people to receive the power of Pentecost in your life. Now, normally, when you have a moment like this, we focus on one particular aspect. Say, okay, well, this is an, this is an altar call time for that. And this is, this is a time for receiving the power of the Spirit of God in the way in which God intended for there to be amazing power present. Now there, are, there is there's an ability here, I don't know if I put this quote in Jerry Bridges' book, but, but listen, listen carefully because I know I need this kind of power as well as ministry power to others. I need the power of the Holy Spirit for ministry in my own soul. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I just don't need fresh determination from Keith. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my own life. The ability of the gospel to motivate us as believers increases as our reliance on the first bookend or the righteousness of Christ grows. That's his illustration. The bookends are the righteousness of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. But motivation by itself is insufficient. We also need the strength to carry out our motivation. An athletic team playing a clearly superior opponent needs more than a desire to win. It also needs ability and power. 
The same is true in the Christian life. We're up against a triumvirate of powerful opponents, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. We don't have the strength within ourselves to engage these powerful foes. That's why God provided the second bookend, the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. There is a presence from God in us that is giving to us divine enablement that apart from Pentecost, I don't have. There are issues that you will struggle through, that I will struggle through in life that I can think, this is what I need to hear. Now, there's much that I need to hear, but there are moments in which this is what I need to hear. You know, you'll hear us use the term, preach the gospel to yourself. There's an aspect in which the Spirit's involvement in the communication of the gospel is in me. And I need to preach that to myself. Right? As a believer, I need to hear of the work of the Spirit that is now available and present in me. Because I became a Christian by the work of the Spirit. I was enabled to believe the gospel in the first place by the work of the Spirit. And then the, the, the pause, if you will, of God from the cross to Pentecost, that 50 days awaiting the day in which the Spirit would come with power. I need to preach that to myself. I need to be aware that in the moment when I confront the world and its ways and how tempting and how good that looks and the weakness of my own flesh again and again and again in one of those areas where we tend to know ourselves, and the opposition of the devil and me falling on my face yet again and my personal history starts convincing me that I can't do this. I can't overcome this. I can't change. You know what I need to be preaching to myself? <laughs> yeah, Keith, if it was just you, you're exactly right, buddy. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes, you have power that's not your own. You have a person whom God has placed in you because of the work of the cross. God is now favorably disposed to you. And not only are you justified before God, but you are enabled by God to live this life. And here's a, here's a verse I've been meditating on just as I've been confounded by my own weaknesses and areas. Ephesians 3 verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You might be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Listen, I can't take that apart and explain it to you. I know that there's truth involved, but it's not just me with a mental exercise of truth doing my best to make that truth stick to me. It's not just me renewing my mind with my own human effort, hoisting my sail into the wind, trying to... It's not just me doing that. There is a power at work in me by another person. And I don't understand how exactly the Holy Spirit strengthens me in my inner being. I just know by faith that's exactly what that verse says. I know that there's an important place of truth 
because he's leading me into the truth. The promises of God are being made revealed to me by the Spirit of God. Undoubtedly, that's having an impact on whether or not I'm feeling strengthened. But the Spirit is involved in doing that. Listen, today is Pentecost. A day when God said, it's a day of power. It's a day when my people will enter into a new era of power. Now, listen, if I was preaching in some of the remote villages of Mexico that we had been in, or in some Amazon forest, you do realize they would have a different definition for power. They don't turn lights on. They don't flick a switch. There's no power lines that run from house to house. They got these broken down, rusted old hand tools that take them forever to do anything with. Break up hard ground. Here, let's just get a big tractor and pull something and just make that whole field. They don't have any idea. They don't know the combustion engine. They're not living in the realm of power. And listen, let's not, let's not miss an opportunity here. Some of us as Christians are playing with bows and arrows and calling that power. Might it be that today God wants to upgrade our definition for power and tell us there's a whole lot more power available to us than what we've been experiencing and what we've known. Let's not be a church that keeps living in the Stone Age. There's real power incredible power to touch all these dimensions of our lives in the ministry of the church. And what I knew as I did this message, I'm thinking, Lord, this would be a great introduction to about 10 messages. And I don't have any intention to go in 10 messages. I do have an intention to ask you, if you don't sit with the word of God and let God explain to you the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to miss a lot. There's a lot in the New Testament about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The hidden things belong to God. This is not one of them. This is very revealed. And it belongs to us and to our children. Let's stand up together. This morning, I want to ask for you to meet with us and to bring to us fresh definition for power in your people. Lord, I pray right now that you're going door to door in this building and you're finding out, so to speak, whether the lights are on. Lord, whether there's the hum of power tools going on from that address or whether those of us residing in these addresses are frustrated weak discouraged because we can't seem to get the job done with our hand tools oh Lord how you long for the day when there would be power in your people mind-blowing, life-changing, ministry-enabling power in your people. God, this morning, this morning, invite us into the era of the Spirit. God, this morning, 
let this be that. Let this today in our lives be that which Joel and Ezekiel and your son spoke of when there was a day coming of great power by the Spirit. As the Lord is directing your own heart this morning, I want to invite folks to come receive prayer. And so I'm going to need a number of people to pray for them. So if you're experiencing and have been experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, then by all means, I want you and need you to be immediately ready to come pray for folks in just a moment. If you're here this morning and the power of the Holy Spirit is, is noticeably absent in your life. One might even ask, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Then this morning, I, I want you to come and receive from God. I want you to come by faith. I want you to survey your life. For those that are here this morning, you're lacking hope. You came in this morning lacking hope. Did you know that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit? that you may abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. So if you're here this morning lacking hope, oh, thank God for Pentecost. Look back on that day and say, God, that was the day you threw open the door of heaven to bring hope into my life with power, not just with my own strength. If you're here this morning and you... You can't seem to get anything out of this word, man. You've just been reading it and nothing's coming and you just feel like you're a stranger to it. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Come this morning. Say, God, fresh power for me to open your word. Lead me into the truth. You will guide me. You will guide me. And I'm here to be led by you. Empower my life. Enable me. If you're here this morning and you're struggling through some area of freedom, Liberty does not describe an aspect of your life. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not a little bit of freedom. Spirit of God type freedom. Powerful freedom. If you're here this morning and you're not free, some dominating issue in your life, well then come this morning and thank God for Pentecost. Thank God for a day when he gave the Spirit in such power that he could work in your life to transform even that area in your life. Let me ask you to just start coming from where you are. Just step out this morning by faith and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to receive from you this morning. God, I'm coming because there's a day on the calendar that's already passed and I live on the other side of it. I don't live in the day of not yet. I live in the day of now. If you're here this morning and just lacking boldness, in your life. You, you, you want to be more in the spirit than you are. You want to be effective in your witness to others. And yet you sense a timidity and closeness to stepping out, taking risk and living out on the edge. Listen, the boldness of the spirit is a ministry of the spirit. In Acts chapter four, when the spirit fell yet again on those who were gathered, they exited that meeting speaking the word of God with boldness. What made the difference in their life? It was revisiting that power of the Spirit in their life. And here's how I want us to spend some time just ministering to folks that are here. There's, there's, there's a variety of ways. God is not in a box this morning. 
When they were in the upper room, there's no thought that anybody laid hands on anybody. The Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to experience and sense his nearness and his presence and his empowerment. That can happen to you whether somebody's praying for you this morning or not. Yet there are other instances, and Acts chapter 19 is one of them, where Paul asked a question of these Ephesians. They had not received the Spirit, and he laid his hands upon them, and they received the Holy Spirit, and they began to prophesy. The Spirit of God began to empower their speech in that moment. It can happen that way. So as Matt begins to lead us in worship, I, I want to ask, ask for some folks to come pray. I want you to believe that Paul was significant when he laid hands upon people and he communicated to them the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Well, that's, that's present in you. If you're a believer, you are dwelt by and enabled by the Holy Spirit to do ministry that's way beyond you. Well, what, what good can I do to somebody up here? Maybe not a whole lot in the natural, but when the Holy Spirit is manifest through your life, well, all kinds of gifts might take place. Words might come to mind for somebody up here. A thought or an impression about how to pray for them. A question to ask them. Or just the impartation of faith at the end of your hands as you pray for them because God has chosen to impart power through the believer's life. So if you're here this morning and you've experienced the empowerment of the Spirit, come be led by God. Just look and see. God, where are you directing me? Who would you direct me to? To come and pray. Father, I thank you for the day of Pentecost. Oh, Lord, thank you for what it means to us right now. Lord, as we read Acts chapter 2 in that first moment of the day of the festival of Pentecost where your spirit colored outside their lines and blew their minds. God, this morning, we've got boxes we put you in as well. Lord, we have expectations that are too narrow. God, we have traditions. We've not experienced something from you. Therefore, we're just not making ourselves available to you. But God, bring the day when the ministry of your spirit is unbounded in our lives. Lord, where we haven't decided we'll focus on this, but not on that. We'll receive this from you, but not that from you. God, this morning, our hearts are turned to you in great celebration that there ever was a day that you anticipated your spirit indwelling and empowering believers and making possible in us things that would have been impossible without the Spirit. So Lord, come. Come in our time here this morning. Come fill this place, Lord. Fill this platform where those who are here praying and seeking you, God, desire to receive from you. God, fill them as they wait like they were in the upper room waiting for what you promised. God, fill this building this morning with the fresh work of your Spirit awakening our lives. God, that we no longer are satisfied with dullness and distance. But God, we want a fresh definition. God, I want a fresh definition for power in my life. Lord, I want to know powerful transformation. I want to know powerful faith to believe in incredible things that you might do next. God, I want to know powerful ministry as we lay hands on one another. As we preach the word, God, we want to see powerful things happen. That people come to know you and new birth takes place. Conviction pours into hearts. God, I want to hear people in the back row saying, what must I do to be saved? God, we want to see you move in our midst, Lord. We want Pentecost to be today and not just back then. 
because you intended it to be today, Lord. God, bring the power of your spirit near to this church, God. Bring the power of your spirit once again to your people. God, may we have fresh thoughts about what it is to be affected by you. Lord, open our hearts this morning. Open us to faith, God. Open us to receiving from you, Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Here am I. Here am I. Take my silver and my gold 